Welcome to the Worthing Museum and Art Gallery podcast. I'm Dr Sam Bars, and over the next six episodes, I'll be going behind the scenes, exploring a different aspect of the work that goes on in the museum and the people who make it happen. Hiya. Thanks very much. Please, you're right. Hi. How are you doing? Sorry I'm late. It's okay. You're right. You're right. What does a curator do? What kinds of objects does the museum have in its collection? And how do the team look after them? How did the museum's story begin? And what are the plans for its future? I'll be speaking to staff and volunteers at the museum to reveal the answers to all of these questions and more. <laughs> oh no, I remember going down here. This is the old library, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. This series accompanies the Museum and Art Gallery's Female Voices exhibition and begins and concludes by considering the women who've played a key role in the museum's story. Oh, a penny farthing there, not, not your average. <laughs> <laughs> this first episode is all about the role of a curator. The role of a curator can be incredibly varied. Uh, it's varied depending on what sort of cultural heritage organisation you work for. Um, but also a day-to-day -day workload within your workplace can be really, really varied as well. I'm Sarah Hobson and I'm Curatorial Assistant at Worthing Museum and Art Gallery. I don't think that what we aim to do is to change people's minds about anything or present any certain viewpoint. Um, we're quite neutral in that respect. I suppose what we try and do is offer alternative interpretations of objects. Um, for example, with the Female Voices exhibition, there's objects in there and artworks that you can have a look at them um, through a kind of feminist lens, or you can look at them from the perspective of how they've been created in terms of technique and process. There's lots of different ways of interpreting the same object. So given that overall aim, what does a day in the life of a curator look like? Sarah told me a bit more about how she's been preparing for the Female Voices exhibition. So as this exhibition is entirely our own collection, it requires a lot of selection work, um, choosing which pieces we're going to include or not include and why. As it's mainly our fine art collection, I'll spend a lot of time in our art store, literally looking through art um, and selecting what we want to display. We've got a collections management system, so I can see what we've got from the comfort of my desk and looking on a computer screen, but it's just not the same as looking at original art and thinking how that might work in the exhibition. Um, lots of my time will then be later at my desk thinking about those works and interpreting them for the exhibition, um, creating the labels that you're going to see which accompany each work, which tell you a bit about why we selected it, who the artist is, why we think they're important. I might then spend a bit of time um, with our volunteers, um, our costume volunteers in particular at the moment, who are helping me to select some of the costume pieces by female designers that are also going to be a part of that exhibition. So as well as working on putting on a programme of changing exhibitions, we also do a lot of work in caring for the collections. So the word cura in Latin actually means like to care for. Um, so that, I suppose, traditionally is the the main role of a curator to actually care for um, and look after and preserve the collections that they're responsible for. 
Um, so when we say to care for the collections, you know, what we mean by that is to monitor the conditions, for example, which objects and artworks are stored in um, or displayed in as well, to ensure that no harm can occur to them and that any deterioration is minimised as much as possible. So we give a lot of time and consideration to the light conditions, the humidity, the temperature, um, how much an object is being handled by staff or by researchers, how much time it's put into storage and in dark spaces, for example. We also work with our education um, colleagues on identifying objects from the collection which can be used for educational groups. We facilitate researchers who want to come in and view something from our collection which maybe isn't on display. The vast majority of our thousands and thousands of items in our collection are actually in storage and what we have on display at any one time is actually only a really small percentage. So we're constantly rotating those displays and trying to find new and creative ways to help people access the stuff that's not on display as well. Um, maybe that's through our social media, where we'll do a profile on, a, on an object, or by offering kind of behind the scenes talks and um, sort of tours um, of our storage facilities and we'll get things out of boxes and show them to visitors and the things that maybe aren't on display. I also wanted to know if there were any less glamorous aspects of being a curator. Uh, there was one particular occasion which I have in mind where I was tasked with doing some emergency cleaning work to a nude sculpture after a colleague who was giving a tour of the museum at the time noticed that someone with, um, let's just say, a cheeky sense of humour had applied what we believe to have been some melted chocolate to <laughs> a sensitive area of the sculpture, I'm going to say. <laughs> Luckily, the substance came off and didn't damage the, the work and the sculpture got her dignity back pretty quickly, okay. um, hopefully without many other visitors noticing. So I'm Jerry Connolly, I'm the museum manager. I started volunteering here in 2005, had various roles through to 2012, and then became curator of costume and social history and became manager in 2015. You've followed quite a long line of curators here at the museum, haven't you? I have. And where does the, where does the journey begin? There's quite an illustrious <laughs> um, line of curators through the years. Um, the story begins back in the early 1900s. So the museum opened in 1908, but the story of the museum starts a little bit earlier. The head librarian, Marion Frost, who ran a library that already existed in the town, a reading room as it was, and um, decided that the town deserved a library and approached Andrew Carnegie, the American industrialist, who was also a philanthropic donor, particularly for libraries um, in the British Isles. She wrote to him asking him to fund a new library for Worthing, and he turned her down. Um, not a woman to take no for an answer. She went back again and asked again, laying down the reasons why, very valid reasons around the existing library was too small for for purpose. Um, it wasn't enough room for anybody to spend time in the library. It was a lending library. Um, so um, to give a better service to the local community um, and she, he agreed to fund the, the library. What I think is interesting at the time is um, 
That funding came through in around 1904, 1905. And then at the same time, Alfred Curtis, who was the first mayor of Worthing, um, donated money for the building of a museum in the town. So the two projects were put together and the funding um, for, to build the existing building, which is currently now the museum, um, after the library moved out in 1974 to the new building on Richmond Road. Marion Frost um, was the head, uh, head librarian and also took responsibility for the museum. So her title was head librarian and curator of museum and art gallery. Um, and that role continued in that, um, in that format for about 41 years, right through till 49. So Marion Frost um, curated the museum from 1908 through to uh, 1928, and then her protege, Ethel Gerard, took over from 1928 to 1949, uh, which is really unusual for the time for female curators and head, libra head librarians at the time, and, and unusual roles, which were pretty much predominantly male roles at that time throughout the country. Worthing was quite ahead of the game in terms of a um, a regional seaside town uh, developing a museum in the early 1900s. How much do we know about Marion Frost as an individual? Um, there's various stories. There are a few newspapers and reports. Everything that I have read about her has come back that she was very straight to the point, but very fair. I guess didn't take no for an answer, and I think that is evidence in the fact that we're in, 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 in a, sitting in a building which she got funding for when first refused. There are reports that at the time she was um, chastised a little bit by her um, employers because she had overstepped her authority in um, getting the funding. But sometimes you have to push those boundaries <laughs> in order for things to happen. And I think that's a really good example of that. So what are the biggest differences between the role of a curator now and back in Marion Frost's day? So a big part of the curator's job is also considering carefully what to accept into the collections and what to say no to. Um, this is perhaps the aspect of curating which is most different to back in Marianne Frost and Ethel Gerard's day in 1908 when a curator's own personal tastes and their kind of areas of interest will have really shaped uh, the collections and will have really influenced what they wanted to say yes to to bring into the collection or not. Whereas today, this is quite different. Um, a curator's role is to be a little bit more neutral and for our own personal taste as much as possible not to kind of get in the way of those decisions. We have a clear collecting policy now where we'll consider an object in line with that collecting policy. And if it doesn't quite fit into our collection here at Worthing, we might suggest to a donor another alternative museum or art gallery that, that it would fit better in, or just have to say no, but thank you. <laughs> we get a lot of wedding dresses, for example, offered to us. Um, lots of sentimental value, people keep hold of them and don't know why, and then decades later they think, this belongs in a museum, and it probably does, but we just have lots and lots of examples. So unless there's a particular kind of hole in our collection that we're looking to sort of fill or complete, um, it's possible that we might say no to something, even if it is of cultural value. Jerry and Sarah spend so much time curating the collection at Worthing. 
I wanted to know if they ever find time to visit other museums as a member of the public without their curator's hat on. Um, it's a little bit of an in-house joke where we often talk, we look at how things are hung on the wall, <laughs> we look at hanging systems, we look at display systems, um, so we spend less time looking at the objects, um, we'll look at how things are interpreted, so we're looking at the technical side of it and coming away with those practical ideas of how we can bring that future, that, that kind of knowledge that's coming out of the nationals and those bigger organisations that should be leading the way and are leading the way, but seeing how we can interpret it and deliver it to, to our museum. At the start of this episode, Sarah explains how the curator's ultimate aim is to help people to examine, interpret and maybe reinterpret the objects they encounter in the museum. I wanted to know more about how curators are involved in this process of learning and how they steer the delicate line between helping people to interpret objects whilst also giving them the space and freedom to enjoy the collection on their own terms. Some aspects of the curator role can be really creative and you're always learning new fascinating things about the collection, even objects that you think you're really familiar with. A new piece of information about it or a new interpretation of it might emerge, maybe from a researcher coming in and having a look at it, or maybe because we're researching it ourselves for a new exhibition, um, looking back over the history files for, for an object. And it just makes you kind of reconsider how you might display it differently, how you might interpret it for visitors differently. So in the example of the Katie Glidden drawing, now we know she's, you know, it was quite an important suffragette who spent time in Royal Holloway Prison for throwing bricks and, you know, was, a, was one of the key figures in the suffragist movement. But before that, we just thought it was a beautiful drawing of a floral scene. As a visitor, you can either just enjoy what's visually on display in front of you. A lot of people come to our exhibitions and maybe don't want to read the text. They just want to look up the works and maybe interpret them for themselves. And that's brilliant. That's a great way of engaging with the collections. Other people might want a bit of kind of background information about the artworks. So that's why we have our curatorial texts and um, people like me or other curators will do research into those objects or artworks and give an interpretation or we might pose certain questions via those written texts as well. Sometimes if I'm walking down Chapel Road with five minutes to spare, I might pop into the museum to have a quick look around. I might not stop to look at anything in detail, and I probably won't read any of the curatorial texts that Jerry, Sarah and the team have carefully put together. Do curators mind when people do that? You know, our museum and art gallery is a public space and we um, really welcome people to come in, even if it is, like you say, just for 10 minutes and maybe engage with just one or two objects and have a look, and if that's what you want to take from it, then brilliant. Um, other visitors come and they do spend hours and hours looking through absolutely everything. Um, and yeah, I would always say, my goodness, you know, come in and, and enjoy it on in whichever way you want to enjoy it. These, the collections belong to the town, they don't belong to the museum, we're just custodians of them. We um, care for them, we, um, we exhibit them, um, but they're for people to come and access and enjoy. So it's really um, up to the individual visitor how they want to engage with that. I think overall the 
best and most rewarding part of the job is working with um, our interns, working with our volunteers, and allowing them to share. And their comments back around the learning that they get from working with us. Um, I think we're a small team, we're a small museum, so therefore when volunteers come in to um, give us their time, they're getting a real cross-section of working in a museum and it really improves their potential for jobs in the future, or just their not general knowledge of how museums work. Yeah, I think for me, ultimately, it is that engagement with people learning and going away. Ultimately, that's what we are. We are an institute of learning, and that should be our ultimate aim of sharing that knowledge and encouraging and inspiring. Jerry and Sarah have helped me to realise how the curator's role is ultimately about helping the public to access, enjoy, and, if they so wish, learn more about the objects that the town has chosen to collect and care for. But although curators do what they do for the public good, I wanted to know if Jerry and Sarah had a personal attachment to any particular objects in the collection at Worthing. If disaster struck and they could only save one object from the building, what would it be? That's a really good question. I would say one of our Netskis, and a Netski is uh, a small, usually made of ivory, uh, a little decorative carved object um, that is used in Japanese men's fashion as a kind of a little belt toggle. Um, so it has a kind of practical use, but um, Traditionally, these are carved into these most intricate kind of beautiful designs and shapes, usually little animals or a little uh, scene of some sort. And we have a selection of them here that are absolutely beautiful, so I would, I would grab one of those pretty quickly. It's a horrible question. Sorry, it is a bit, isn't it? <laughs> How do you answer that? If you have five children, which one would you choose? <laughs> that is so unfair. And, and I'm only allowed one out of all of the collections. That's really difficult. I don't know. That's a really tough one. And I guess I can answer it now and probably change my mind in 10 minutes time and again tomorrow. And I think there's a personal attachment to it. There's a dress on display, which is a 1760s uh, court dress. And um, I suppose it's because I've had so much um, involvement in, in, in how it's currently displayed. So when I arrived at the museum, it was in a box and it was in, it was in good condition, but it just um, was a bit crumpled and it had been used. Um, so it's a 1760s dress and it was used as fancy dress in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And um, we managed to get some funding to have it conserved. A lot of conversation, a lot of debate around do we bring it back to the um, 1900s period when it was fancy dress or do we bring it back to the 1760s. One of the issues with the dress was that um, in order for it to be worn as fancy dress they had replaced the facings on the front. At some point they had shrunk or had pulled the main fabric of the dress in some way so it, they needed to be removed to protect the dress. Um, and it was only after the conservator removed those facings that we discovered that the original facings had not been removed before they put the new facings on it. 
So we had clear evidence of the silk, the weight of the silk, the color of the silk that was used as the original facings. So we immediately made the decision to take it right back to its original um, dress, um, which was great. And it was a real experience to see that happen. And, and the dress that we got back, which is now on display, um, was, is amazing. And yeah, I think that would have to, have to go with me. <laughs> As one. I leave the building. <laughs> Thanks to Jerry Connolly and Sarah Hobson for joining me for this first episode of the Worthing Museum and Art Gallery podcast. And thank you for listening. In the next episode, we'll be exploring the collection at Worthing in more detail. The Female Voices exhibition runs from Saturday the 19th of October 2019 to Saturday the 15th of February 2020. To find out more, search for the Worthing Museum and Art Gallery online, on Facebook and on Instagram. Or even better, come in and look around. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not subscribe and have the next episode come to you as soon as it's released. See you next time.